Hey everyone, this is Joe. I just wanted to give you a heads up on today's episode. Today, you will be listening to part two of our interview with Robert Schramm on the seven steps to earning instructional control. This episode, we dive deeper in using the seven steps and discuss Robert's journey to developing these seven steps. I hope you enjoy today's episode. And without further discussion, let us begin. This is the Do Better Podcast with Dr. Megan Miller and Joe Smith, launching you into the future of behavior analysis. the Do Better podcast. On today's episode, we are interviewing behavior analyst and author Robert Schramm. This is Megan. And this is Joe. This is where we blast off to the final frontier in search of improving ourselves in the field of behavior analysis. Thank you for spending time with us. Now let us begin. So let's start off with a quick introduction in our in case our listeners aren't familiar with the incredible work you do. Can you tell me a little bit, a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, well, like we said, my name is Robert. Um, I'm a board-certified behavior analyst since 2003. Uh, at that time, um, I had just left the school system. I was working as a special education teacher and a, an inclusion specialist in the California school systems. Uh, I got married uh, to my wife, who is German, and we moved to Germany. Uh, and then out in kind of the wild west of uh, of the European uh, anti, not anti-ABA, but just really no awareness of ABA. <laughs> we started our, our first, uh, we started an autism intervention service called Canospa ABA. Um, and then spent the next 14 years um, educating the European public on the benefits of applied behavior analysis for children with autism and other disabilities. Um, became, uh, throughout that time, became a international presenter and an author, uh, writing uh, three different books, uh, one of which uh, I co-authored with with um, the lovely Dr. Megan Miller, who's obviously you all know. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and then in 2017, uh, my wife and I uh, shifted our focus um, just a little bit in, in moving to uh, British Columbia. And so now we run the uh, Institute in Germany, and I work for a company called Meridian Rehab in British Columbia, Canada. Uh, and I'm also looking at doing some independent, um, uh, I, I guess you could call it consulting, but it's, it's, we're trying to make awareness of the, the special approaches that we've been, um, we've been working with uh, towards gaining instructional control with learners, uh, helping to motivate um, 
children who seeming who seem to be uh, unmotivated or um, uninterested in cooperation in um, some kids who have you know defiance disorders and, and other things where they're they're constantly um, battling uh, with their parents and so that's been kind of like the focus of my of my career is is developing better ways to earn cooperation with uh, folks who need that help that's awesome so you were a special education teacher. Can you talk a little bit about your, what your experience as a special education teacher it was? Sure, it was uh, in the late 90s, so I'm, <laughs> I'm aging myself here a bit. Um, I had, you know, it's funny, I started out um, in education and I was just substitute teaching and I was constantly being asked if I could sub in special ed because there was, a, a, there was just a, a dearth of, of people a available or interested in working in special ed. And I was perfectly happy doing it. I had uh, grown up close to an uncle uh, with Down syndrome and um, I was always really interested in, in, and just felt comfortable with people that um, that had disabilities. Um, and so I, I, I enjoyed doing it and I became kind of like the, the, the district sub for special ed and I was just working from one special ed class to the next and the uh, the special uh, the, the program specialist who was in charge who kind of became a mentor of mine um, she uh, suggested that I go back and get my master's degree in special education and then I start focusing in that area and so I did and um, I was eventually hired on as a um, inclusion specialist for the Manhattan Beach School District and this was back in the late 90s when there was, you know, inclusion was just starting to come around in California, which mm -hmm. is where it hit first before it moved on to the rest of the country and then ultimately to the world. And so I was one of the first people who are out there on the front lines trying to help kids with disabilities to get educated within their regular classrooms. That's um, awesome. But one of the things I realized as, you know, having had my master's degree in education and working with the school district uh, as a specialist in inclusion was that was really ill-equipped to help the kids that I was working with on a regular basis, not just in inclusion, but just in general. Um, I spent time um, doing special education, special day classrooms. I spent time uh, as an adapted physical education specialist. Um, and, and, even, and, and I, even though I was considered a master of education, um, I didn't have a set of tools that, I could that I, I knew how to use on a regular enough basis um, to really be able to reach some of these kids that were the most challenging in the classrooms. And we were failing a lot of the kids that we were working with. And as a special education teacher, I'm sorry, as an inclusion specialist, there was one specific boy we were working with who was perfectly capable of doing all the work that the class was asking, yet refused to do anything. Like when he was asked to put his name down on his paper, he started to insist that he'd be called by a different name and would only write a different name on the paper. Um, and whenever someone was trying to get him to participate in something, he would find a way to blow it up for the whole classroom. And it was my job to, to keep this kid included. And we did everything we could. And we just, you know, we tried everything from occupational therapy, kind of sensory integration techniques to, um, you know, we tried to get really permissive with him and, and let him have act, you know, let him do the, just set it up so that he could do all the things he wanted and gave him a, you know, a sensory diet and the ability to go outside. And basically he just took advantage of everything, everything that anyone mm -hmm. tried to do, he was able to take advantage of and nothing seemed to, to matter or work. And, um, the school district was ready to get rid of him. And I was at my wits end. I didn't know how to, how to support him in the classrooms. And so they were going to try to send him to a, um, 
to a public, a non-public school. And the family obviously was against this, this idea. So they brought in a behavior analyst. And this was the first time I had ever heard of behavior analysis, applied behavior analysis. Uh, and they brought in a behavior analyst from the, the area. And he came in and sat down and did a functional analysis of behavior for, uh, for this child. And because I was his case carrier, I spent time with this guy. And we, we walked around and, and we talked. And he sat down and he explained to me the basics of, of behavior analysis. He explained to me this, the principles of reinforcement, um, stimulus control, all these different things. And I just, it just was mind blowing to me that I had gone through my entire education, including a master's degree in special mm -hmm. education. And I had never even heard the principle of reinforcement explained to me or the principles of, of extinction or, or any of these things. I just couldn't believe that 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 these things that he was saying that made so much sense and that were so obviously valuable to us were just not openly available to every special education teacher or every teacher in general. And it really blew my mind. Anyway, at that point, um, I started, I started, I realized I needed to learn about behavior analysis and I started focusing in on that. Um, and that's when I ultimately led me to leave the school district because I got tired uh, at that time of not being allowed to say and do what I thought was best for the kids. Mm -hmm. There were so many times I was sitting in IEP meetings and I was specifically told, you cannot say this child needs that because we can't mm -hmm. afford to give it to him. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I, I, I was being censored and it was, I was put in this position of either saying what I believed or being in a lot of trouble with, with the people that I worked with. And so I decided that it was untenable for me and I left the school district. That's when I moved, that's when I got married and moved off to Germany and started uh, Panasp ABA where I could do only what I thought was best for the kids at all times. And if any, and the buck was going to always stop with me as far as making those kind of decisions. Um, yeah. I, I, it was sorry. a tough place because leaving the school system, you know, we need good people in the schools. And, and if I'm leaving, I'm sure other people are leaving for the same reasons. Um, but ultimately, I mean, the burnout rate for special education teachers in the school system is a little over two years. At least it was 20 years ago. I don't know what it is now. Um, so, I mean, how are these kids getting any kind of an education in public schools when they've got teachers who are two years or three years maximum before they're burning out and being replaced? Um, and the school system is so focused on what they can afford to give that they can never really make recommendations that are best for the kids. So, that, Or they're yeah. so focused on delivering um, um, instruction based on certain criteria that the state has um, created. And yeah, that's just, a whole yeah. other aspect. Yeah, that's a whole other aspect. And then... <laughs> And you have it's to get through that curriculum. It's not identifying what the child needs. It's about doing what the school district wants, what the state curriculum says you should do. Yeah. I mean, I can't tell you the number of kids that were, that were pre-verbal um, who were being, you know, taught um, like prepositions and pronouns and stuff. And these kids, you know, it's like, well, that's the curriculum for a fifth grader. Well, this kid isn't, this kid, you know, shouldn't even, you know, he's not anywhere near ready for these types of these mm -hmm. goals that, uh, and so you end up just, they just waste their time over and over trying to meet standards that don't apply, that really shouldn't apply for, for individuals. Um, so anyway, there was a lot of reasons why I left the school district, but, but yeah, that was my experience. Um, I, I met really great people. Uh, I worked with some people who were really caring and trying their best, but it was, a, it, it's a system that's not set up for the people on either end of the spectrum. It's set up, it's, the school system is set up to the middle. 
And the best yeah. teachers have the widest middle of kids that they can reach. Some mm. teachers, they, they reach those kids. Some teachers are really good and they can reach these kids. But there's always going to be kids out on the outsides on the very high end of the, you know, the gifted kids. And there's going to be the kids on the lower end who are never going to be getting the, the, the education that they really need or deserve. Yes. Uh, I, I totally um, understand how you feel. And I, there's been times in my career that I've been there where I'm like, what am I doing? Yeah. Um, and that was really interesting that you came in contact with the BCBA while working with a child and you really, re I mean, you realized like how powerful ABA was and how crucial it was to work with um, using ABA with um, your, your learners. It truly was an epiphany. I mean, it was, I mean, I had already gone through the process of learning about sensory integration, learning about PECs, um, learning about uh, play therapy. And I had been doing all of these things and even teach. I had learned about the teach program and I was trying to implement all of these different strategies with my kids, specifically the ones with autism, because they were the kids that I was kind of most interested in. They were mm -hmm. the ones that, that I realized that um, they had so much more potential. The kids that I had met with autism had so much more potential than we were reaching. It was, mm -hmm. you know, some of the kids with Down syndrome and they had some, there was definitely, I felt like I was kind of maximizing their potential. I could get them interested in things and, and, you know, and I was kind of pushing them along to where I thought that they, they should be able to thought that I was in trouble with. It was like, um, every time I started to see a glimmer of, Hey, I'm starting to reach this child. I would say or do one thing and then boom, they'd be gone. They'd be, they'd just lose interest or they'd pull back into themselves or they would, they would find some way to kind of avoid me. And then I was stuck having to chase them down again. And I found that the more I chased, the more they ran. Uh, and that became this big problem is, is education with these types of kids is always about teaching them as much as you can while you've got their attention then they run away from you and then you chase them down and try to get them back again. Mm -hmm. And I realized that this chase game was never going to be, was never going to be able to lead us to optimal outcomes. You're never going to be able to pull someone and force them to learn from you in short spurts of time with them constantly trying to escape. And that's really what led me to this, this concept of, you know, my book is titled, one of my books, the, the main book that I wrote is called Motivation and Reinforcement, Turning the Tables on Autism. And it really came to this idea that we have to kind of turn the tables. We cannot be chasing kids and trying mm -hmm. to convince them to learn from us. Because as long as it's coming from our desire to teach them, they're always going to have a desire to escape. Mm -hmm. They're always going to see a benefit in escape. What we have to do is set things up so that we don't need to be teaching them, but we set it up so that they want to be learning from us and that they're chasing us, trying to get us to teach them. And if we can set that up, suddenly we have a little bit, we have a lot more control over what that teaching setting can be. And so I call it turning the tables. Instead of us trying to convince them to learn from us, we set up the environment so that the child's trying to convince us to be willing to teach them. And once that happens, once you make that switch, then finally you're in a situation where you can start to see optimal outcomes because now this child is, is adjusting their behavior to try to convince you to keep teaching them. And once, you know, once we've got that, that's, that's the key to everything. Um, and so uh, that's where my work kind of all led to is how do we, how do we get a situation where kids are begging us to teach them and everything that doesn't lead us towards that is getting in the way. 
Everything that, everything that we do that is the opposite of getting them to try to beg us to teach them is getting in the way of what we're trying to do. And ultimately, that's what got me away from, got me realizing that escape extinction as a tool was ultimately, you know, it could get you what you wanted in the short term, but it was ultimately harmful yes. to our, our relationship building. It's harmful to the child's making the child a better learner going forward. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to find a way to be able to gain and hold on to instructional control without using escape extinction. And ultimately that led me to the seven steps to earning instructional control, which is what I've been teaching um, to this day. Um, and yeah, and that's pretty much what I use with all, all my clients, with my family members, with my friends, with my, it's just how I live my life. Uh, I try my best. Uh, to to pay attention to the principles, the seven basic principles behind the seven steps to instructional control. Um, and that allows me to have um, better relationships and to get more of my needs met um, from other people. Awesome. I think you just covered like the whole podcast episode right there. <laughs> like, give us a brief intro. Um, and here's all of it. <laughs> well, he did ask me a second question. About I know, school, I know. So. Um, well, I forgot when we first started in the recording, I was supposed to give a little disclaimer. We are recording this episode during the lovely uh, COVID-19 situation. So you all may, the audio may not be as good as usual because like everyone is on Zoom right now. So it has been a little mm -hmm. glitchy. So apologies to our listeners for that. But um, just maybe wanted we to throw some, maybe we can throw some subtitles up if it ever glitches out. In yeah, post. I mean, it, it hasn't been like that bad, but there are points where it kind of pauses. So we'll see when we re-listen to it, how it goes. But we like to record on Zoom so we can have the video and that's just how it is. So, all right. So we're going to dive in a little bit more uh, with some questions about the seven steps. Now that you have everyone like, what's this? What if, I want to know more. <laughs> um, so Robert, you and I actually first met on the Yahoo group back in the day, back in 2009, when that was a thing that like a lot of people were doing. Uh, I described a procedure that I had used and you, um, it wasn't the seven steps because I didn't know about the seven steps then, but I'll forever be grateful that you reached out to start a conversation with me about your book, Motivation and Reinforcement. Had a different title then, but that was the first edition. Um, honestly, something, I don't remember what the first edition title was, but the current one is Motivation yeah. and Reinforcement, like you mentioned. So, yeah, so time and then a 2011 second edition uh with the with the new title motivation and reinforcement yes so for so, um go ahead was it dtt-net or was it verbal behavior group i don't remember <laughs> which one i was in a bunch of them at that time so uh i don't remember which one we met on but yeah, basically somebody was having some issues with challenging behavior and everybody was re requiring or you know recommending escape extinction and you and i were both like don't do it that don't do it decide if you really need to do it yes right? i mean i'm not saying you can't use escape extinction ever i just choose not to because i've never needed to and i haven't needed to in 10 15 years um but if you don't know a better way and escape extinction is something you can, you know, it does work. There is literature that says that you can use escape extinction and you can build better cooperation, but it's not generally your best bet. And it's and, and learning alternatives, I think, is really important to all behavior analysts and all parents and all, you know, if you're grabbing your kid and making them 
participate in things they don't want to participate in, it's not a long-term solution. Right. You're not going to be able to throw enough reinforcers at them to make them happy that they're being held captive. Right? It doesn't matter what I you think. I think we're all going to be in that situation right now with COVID and being stuck in our houses. Yeah. <laughs> but. I was going to say, it doesn't matter what you're feeding the prisoners. They're still, you know, you could be feeding them prime rib. They're still not happy that they're in prison. And that's, that's what escape extinction ultimately is, is about. But uh, yeah, you're right. We're all good. We're all locked in now, aren't we? Yeah, I know. At least there are people that are getting creative with reinforcers on, um, you know, different celebrities and whatnot are doing various things. So hopefully that'll stay high quality for a while. But um, anyway, so to get to the actual question, could you tell the listeners a little bit about the seven steps? Um, first, you kind of touched on this already in your intro, but if you want to talk about how you use it as a guide or framework for your programming and then kind of explain each of the seven steps, but we might pause occasionally in case Joe and I have any questions uh, for you yeah. as you explain each of the seven steps. Yeah, no problem. Um, so ultimately the seven steps was designed um, based upon what I was doing that was, that I found was necessary to be done in order to earn better instructional control. So, you know, I had originally learned my verbal behavior approach to ABA through people like uh, Dr. Mark Sundberg, um, Dr. Vince Carbone, Dr. Jim Partington. Um, I had been going to their workshops and reading their stuff and, and trying to learn from, from them the best that I could from a distance. Um, and the prevailing approach to earning instructional control was based upon pairing your, your teaching setting with reinforcement making your, what you're trying to teach as fun as possible, and then slowly fading in instruction. Um, however, with a lot of kids, once you would start to fade in that instruction, no matter how much fun you were, they would still try to escape. And when they did, you would say, okay, well, what do I do now? Well, then the, the answer was always escape extinction. Block them, don't let them leave, hold them in, block their chair in, put yourself up against the wall so they can't get away quickly. Keep your instruction on and keep following through and then and make them do it before, and then reinforce them um, before you move on to trying to make your thing, your, your environment fun again. Um, and so that's what I did. That's what I was taught to do and that's what I did. And, and what I really learned was there was a large number of kids, not even just a small subset, but a large number of kids that you could be freaking Disneyland. But the second you asked them to stand in, in one line for even a few seconds, they were running out the doors. They were gone. Uh, and it didn't matter, you know, how much fun. You couldn't possibly be fun enough to overcome their desire to not be controlled by your, by your instructions or to not do anything that they didn't want to do. And so there were quite a few families I was working with that we were failing. We were not gaining better instructional control and we were not meeting, you know, our goals with them. And so when I was going, you know, family to family throughout Germany with my wife, Nadine, uh, the two of us were traveling together and we were covering the entire country of Germany together. Um, and it was like, every time I was writing up a new program, I was keeping track of what was working. Uh, and what wasn't working. And I, and I kept realizing that there were some basic specific behavioral principles that always had to be in play. And, um, and when I started to, you know, separate out what these principles were, I realized that we did enough things up front. If we, if we organized the environment enough up front, we could put ourselves in a position where we didn't have to 
pull the child and hold the child into teaching when they wanted to leave. And that, I see my internet connection is unstable. Okay. And that ultimately is what, what we needed to do to be able to turn the tables. Um, if I'm constantly pulling you into teaching, no matter what I'm doing, if you're trying to leave and I'm pulling you in, I'm always wanting to teach you more than you're wanting to learn from me, which goes back to the thing I said earlier, that can't be the case. And so what I realized is whatever I did, I had to set up the environment in such a way where I could tell the child to leave. I could say, you know what? You're not working hard enough. I'm not going to teach you right now. And I had to leave that child with the thought of, ooh, I just lost something. I just lost something of value. How do I get that back? How do I get um, mom and dad to start teaching me again? How do I get Robert to come back and, and play with me some more? And um, in order to do that, there were specific things that had to be done consistently and regularly. And if I did those six major things, I found that I would then be able, as part of the seventh thing, I would be able to um, just not reinforce escape behavior. Just, just not give, just make sure that there was no reinforcement being followed from escape behavior. I could make escape itself as, as little value as I could offer as little value as possible in the escape condition. And the child would see that escape was no longer a preferred option. Why, what am I escaping to? I'm escaping to nothing of value when what I'm being offered is tons of value. But as long as I'm pulling that child in, there's always a reaction for them to pull away. Every time I tried to pull a child in, it was like a, a reflexive motivating operation where they would just like, oh, you're trying to keep me here? I'm out of here. And there was always that pull and struggle. So what I had to start teaching our families to do was never switch over to, okay, this is fun, this is fun, this is fun, but you have to stay here. It's always, this is fun and I'll make it fun, but if you don't want to be here, go away because you don't have to be a part of this fun. I'll have this fun without you. And what we were able to find is that more often than not, kids wanted to be a part of the fun. Even kids with severe lower levels of um, education, uh, not education, uh, but like lower, um, lower learning, uh, early learners with autism. Thank you for, for finally coming up with the term, Robert. Um, <laughs> but kids who had um, like no verbal, no language, um, who were more highly affected by the, the issues with autism, um, they wanted to have fun. They wanted to do the things that they can enjoy. They wanted, they had their goals and their motivations throughout the day. And if we were using those goals and motivations as part of our teaching and then said, oh, but you know what? You don't get to be a part of this if you're not willing to at least listen or at least cooperate to some degree that you're capable of. Um, then we were able to, for the first time, really kind of turn the tables. We were able to set it up so that our families were not trying to convince our kids to learn, but they were able to say, I'm willing to teach you if you meet these expectations, and if you don't, you can go somewhere else. But then we set up the environment so that the child would prefer to be with us and then be able to see both aspects of that and then make the decision. What's better for me? What do I like more? Do I like being by myself over here or do I like being with mom working and learning? Well, if we make learning fun enough and we take all of the joy, if we take all of the, the reinforcement value out of escape, we don't have to hold them in anymore. And that's ultimately what, what developed into the seven steps to earning instructional control, um, which basically is a way to, to, to get instructional control without ever using any forms of escape extinction. Now, I love, I, I love the idea. Like, can you speak to like how a special, teacher, special education teacher can 
use the seven steps of control when you have a student who has um, who elopes from the classroom? Sure. Um, yeah. We're going to jump right into some advanced. <laughs> some advanced you know what? Can, we can hold off on that for, um, and wait till a little bit later so we can get the, in the rest of the stuff. Well, we can, but let's not talk about it necessarily in terms of how that works with the seven steps. But when you start working with the seven steps, you start to realize that that's not just a way to earn instructional control, but it actually can ultimately be a framework for your entire programming. Because the way you do the seven steps to earn instructional control is also the way you build up a teaching setting. And it's also the way that you should create an, a, a, an ever-growing goals and skills. So if you focus the seven steps, it actually leads you into the way that you behave with your children natural, in the natural environment, the way you do, deal with them when you're doing one-to-one -one teaching. Um, it all can grow out of it. And so if you ask me a question like, how do I keep a kid from eloping? The answer to that is always going to be something that um, if you look back at the way the seven steps are structured, mm -hmm. these are things you would naturally be doing as part of the seven steps anyway. But really, whenever you're dealing with any type of a behavior, you've got to look at the balance of, of value. So what is the value the child is getting from leaving versus what is the value they're getting from staying? If a child is, is leaving the classroom, they're not just running because they feel like running, usually, right? Now, maybe yeah. it is just the maybe running itself is its own reward. Um, but more often than not, they're running to avoid or escape a lower mm -hmm value area to try to go to something that they consider to be more valuable uh, for whatever reason. Maybe when they run, people chase them and that's a fun chase game mm -hmm. and that becomes more valuable than staying in the classroom and doing their homework, right? Yeah. So if they're running, it just tells me like, if you put an equal sign in the middle, it's a math problem. You know, you've mm -hmm. got that equal signs in the middle and if you want them to stay, you've got to more heavily weight your side than the other, the escape side. So escape is over here, cooperation is over here, and the, the middle is kind of like a fulcrum in a, in a balance. And as long as you've got more weight of value on your side of the teaching, the child will stay with you. But as soon as you go here and they're, they're kind of like, ooh, I don't know, I'll pay attention, but I'm not going to pay that close attention. And then, boom, you get here, they're going to leave. They may get up and run. They may flop to the floor. They may pretend to not know what they're doing and, and you know, you know, reach out or they may act like they need help being prompted. They may just stop listening. They may go into their head and think of other things. They, they could do anything. They could yell and scream. They could bite. They could kick. They can scratch. So kids have all of these skills available to them and whatever has worked for them in the past are the skills they're going to use. But really it comes down to this, this fulcrum in the middle is what we're offering more valuable, more heavily weighted with value than what they would get if they escaped. And so if you're saying to me that this child is choosing to run away in the classroom, then what I'm saying is, is you've got a problem with this. Escape is more valuable than what you're offering when they're there. So what are the two things that you have to do? You have to, A, take the value out of escape while also adding more value to what you want them to do. So we're looking at increasing the ratio of reinforcement available in your teaching setting, maybe increasing the types of reinforcement that's available in your teaching setting, maybe reducing the work level at some point in the beginning uh, in your teaching setting, all of which should give you more value to stay. Then you got to look at how do you re reduce the reinforcement level of escape? Um, are we getting involved in a chase game with the child? Do they love running around? 
um, can we block off the doorways so that we can keep them in the area and then just ignore them and, and, and withhold access to reinforcement? Are they running to the gym where they can then play with the balls? Well, we have to make those balls not available, right? So we have to then take all the value out of running away or as much as we can. And if we do those two things together, we can get our, we can get our, our we get ourselves back balanced and then ultimately get ourselves to the point where we're offering more value as a teaching setting than that child could get from escape. And once we switch to here, there's no more escape. It doesn't happen anymore. There's no reason for it. And so everything we do, no matter what we're teaching, whether it's instructional control, whether it's trying to get a child to cooperate with a, a classroom routine, or it's learning goals one-to-one, -one, or learning goals in a group setting, it's always this, always. Everything comes down to this. And as soon as that child is doing something inappropriately or escaping, you're in this situation. How do you change it? How do you add more weight and value and fun and reinforcement to this side so that they want to stay with you? Um, and so if you go back, once we start going through the seven steps, um, you'll see that everything we do within those seven steps does that. It adds tons of value, and the more creative you can be, the more valuable you can be on the, on the positive participation side. And it also teaches you how to take all value out of escape. And so it does both things. And I think that's where it kind of takes a step further than what I was taught in verbal behavior. Because what I was taught in verbal behavior was make everything as fun as you can. And then as soon as the child tries to escape, hold them in. And what I said, what I started realizing was, no, 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 make it as fun as you can. And if they try to escape, you're not making it fun enough. And escape is too much fun. Try to make it more fun. Also take the fun out of escape and start to make escape um, less of less valued option. That way you can allow it and still know that it's, they're going to come back, that that escape will happen less and less and less. Um, and yeah, and so that's where we started, you know, that's when the seven steps really come into fruition. And so to answer your question, how do you stop a child from, from eloping? There is no answer. Like, um, I mean, obviously shut the doors. Sure. They can't run away. So you can, you can, yeah. you can get rid of the actual access to the escape. Um, you could also grab them and hold them and tackle them and, and lay on top of them and they can't go anywhere. But ultimately when it comes down to is if you're going to get a child to not want to run away you've got to make staying more valuable than running away. So what is it that they're getting and running away that works for them? What is it about what you're offering to stay that is taking value out of their being there? And then that's what you play with. Those are the, those are the um, variables that you have to adjust. And once you've done that, they will stay and they will participate and they will enjoy it because you're making it so. Uh, um, and, and I, love I know that. that that's a real general answer, but... But I love that. I love um, how you truth. broke it down to like just having a balancing equation um, visual for our, for our listeners. Just because, I mean, I think that's a great way to just break it down to just have people understand like, hey, if I'm not, if they're trying to escape from my classroom, then we're not making it fun enough or engaging enough for them to want to stay. And that's yeah. a, and, that's and, a, and there's something heavily weighted on the side of escape. Yeah. yeah. So it's both, both yeah. sides. Like you don't have to just add things here. You could also take some of the value away here. That'll yeah. help. 
And if you just think of it in one way, if you just think of it, and that's what I think tradition, that's what I think verbal behavior approach was doing. They were thinking, mm -hmm. how do I make my teaching more fun, make it more fun, make it more fun. But they weren't thinking, how do I take the value out of escape? And that's one of the things I think with step seven that we really focus on doing is steps one through six are about making, um, making the teaching setting as fun as it can be. But step seven is, is all about taking all the value out of escape. And so when you have those two things working together, it's much easier to keep yourself weighted in the direction you want to be, you want it to be weighted in. I think for that, the taking the value out of escape too, a lot of people don't realize, like you've already mentioned this with, you know, maybe the child likes being chased. They, they don't realize the value of escape. They may not just be trying to escape to something. It could be whatever the interaction is. They like the physical battle. They, you know, the facial expressions you're making while they're escaping, just the type of attention you're giving, like any of that stuff. And it's funny because I have a four-year-old and I've, how long have we been presenting on this, Robert? <laughs> like the uh, seven least, steps, at least, at 10, least years, 10 years, right? So. Um, and even with my own son, like occasionally I get sucked into the, I'm gonna, you're gonna do this. <laughs> I will get you and I will pull you in and you will do this. And then fortunately he thinks it's hilarious. So I'm quickly like, wait, what am I doing? But I'm so fluent. I do it all the time with clients all the time. I train people all the time on it, but with my own child, so much more difficult. There's like some sort of psychological component, like a history, you know, obviously as a behavior analyst, history of reinforcement where that's just so ingrained as like, this is my child. He will do what I say. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and that helps us to, I mean, I started this without kids too. Um, just like you, we were in this field and we were, you know, building our, our, our repertoire in the field without having our own children. And then at some point along the way, we had children. I have a, an 11 year old now and a nine year old daughters. Um, and even to this day, I'll see myself raising my voice and I'll do it. And I'll think to myself, well, why am I raising my voice? I know I just need to take something away that's valuable to them. And that's going to be more potent than raising my voice because you keep raising your voice and pretty soon they're going to look at you like, I don't care. When I was a kid, my parents weren't big time spankers. Um, they, they weren't like intimidators or, you know, they were, they were good loving, you know, parents, but when they didn't know what else to do, they would resort to a spanking. And I remember, um, it was, I guess I was probably around 11 or 12. And I remember I had really made my mom upset one day and, and, and she sent me up to my room and I ran up to my room and I was up there and she came up and she goes, that's it, get over here. And she laid me over her, her, her lap and she tried to spank me and she hit me two, three, four. And I just looked back at her and I went, really? You think that hurts? You think that that means anything? And it was, there, there was a point in time where that just she's going to be able to hurt me and it wasn't going to be able to and from that point forward I didn't really have to do anything that they asked because they'd given me their best tool they'd given me their 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 strongest motivator or their strongest um, punisher and it no longer affected me and so at that point I was you know I was trouble and when I was um when I was 16 years old I, I can tell you this ex I, I can see exactly where we were in our house when my mom had this conversation with me but I was 16 years old and I was getting ready to go out for the weekend. Uh, I was getting ready to take the, not for the weekend, but I was, it was a Friday night or something. I was going to take the car and we were going to go for a ride. And my mom was handing me the keys and she goes, you know, I'm so happy you got your driver's license. And I said, oh yeah, why is that? She said, because for the first time in years, I have something I can take away that you <laughs> actually care about. And it was like, huh, 
she's kind of got it now, right? She had something that I was motivated enough to start making better choices. And so at 15, I would come home late because what was she going to do? Spank me? But at 16, I wasn't coming in after curfew anymore because what was she going to do? She was going to take that car away the next weekend and I wasn't going to be able to use it. And so suddenly I had a reason to cooperate again. And it wasn't about yelling at me and it wasn't about hitting me. It wasn't, it was about having something I cared about that was either available or not available, depending upon my behavior choices. Um, and so, I mean, there's such a lesson in that. She never had to hit me to begin with. The spaking was never going to um, be a long-term solution. And, and even in the short term, it made me feel like, boy, she, she you know, aggression, when, you, when things don't work, aggression is obviously okay. Yeah. When things aren't going your way, right? But having access to things, I think, fits right into our capitalist, capitalist society anyway. Um, we all have to learn that you get what you earn in this world because th we don't have a, a free for all world where people just give you whatever you want. And we can't allow our kids to grow up thinking that our parents are just going to give us everything we want when we want it, no matter what we do. And then the world is going to do that as well. So we have to teach our kids from an early age that their behavior affects the, the quality of their life. When they make good choices, they get better things. And when they make bad choices, things start to fall apart around them because that's going to happen when they're on their own. Yeah. That's going to happen when they're out there um, dealing with friendships. If you treat your friends the way you treat your parents when you're a bad kid, then you're not going to have any friends. Those people are going to stop hanging out with you. They don't have to be there. And so I know, I don't know how we got on this from you talking <laughs> Sorry. about your son, <laughs> but this is the way my mind works. So, so this is an interesting thing that I like to talk about. And so here I am in the middle of it. I'm going to keep going until you guys stop. Fine. So well, I had, I had a follow-up too. So when you're done, I'll, I'll okay. see what you think about this. We'll circle back. <laughs> we'll, I promise we'll circle back. But the thing is, is that whatever we do as a parent, we have to make sure um, that we're not just getting our needs met, but we're also developing the child's ability to maintain and fix their relationships. Because so many of our kids who have problem behavior um, become so challenging that families start just giving in on everything and, and they start handing everything over to the child and the child takes complete control. And once that child who feels like, oh man, I have the ability to control everyone around me, goes out into society, they end up realizing that they're alone, that they're, they don't keep friends, they can't keep a job, they, they get in trouble with the police because they have no understanding that they have to adjust their behavior to maintain these relationships. And so it's almost imperative on a parent at early ages to start showing the child that better behavior leads you to better things. The worst social behavior leads you to worse things. And so if they don't, if they don't um, represent that in their own interactions, the child's never going to learn it. And so as a parent, you can't just be the child's best friend and give them whatever they want and expect that they're somehow going to learn how to um, care about other people and give up to other people. In some cases, that will work, and that's great. But in a lot of cases, a lot of kids, they'll take what they get because they haven't developed the social uh, desires and understandings that, that uh, as adults, we, we should generally have. And so they get stuck in this, oh, if I want something, here's what I got to do to get it. 
And if that doesn't work, then I'll do this to get it. And if that doesn't work, I'll do this to get it. And all of their learning is just what will get mom to give in? What will give dad to give in? And if that doesn't work, what can I do? And before you know it, they're biting and scratching and kicking, throwing poo at you if that's what it's going to take. And everyone else starts backing away. Well, at some point, and their relationship with any offense, because all of their behavior is about how do I get what I want at any cost necessary. And so we need to, as parents, from the early days, from two and three and four years old, and, and how old is Tyler now? He's four. Four. At four. Even at four years old, you've got to be aware of, are you teaching him how to repair the relationship with you? Or are you running around doing all the repairing? Uh, and I know you, and I know that you're not. And I know that your example was, was, I mean, like I said, when I started this, I do the same thing. I'll see myself raising my voice with my kids. And, but the difference between you, the, the difference with, between you and I and a typical parent is when we get to the point where we're not happy with ourselves, we know what to change, right? We know how to fix it. Like, yeah, my kids are good kids. They, I've, I've taught them well their whole lives. They, they make good choices and, and every now and then they annoy me. And so I can get upset with them and that's okay. It's not going to make a difference because I do enough of relationship building with them. So that even if I can, I do get mad at them and I do raise my voice. If I ever get to the point where I think I don't want to do this anymore, I have other tools. I have other ways to go and I can adjust that. But so many parents don't have that. They don't know what else to do. They're yeah. out there and they're just yelling at their kids, yelling at their kids, yelling at their kids. And their kids are getting used to getting yelled at and they're getting used to ignoring being yelled at. And then they're getting better at, at, at getting what they want even after they've been yelled at. Yep. And it just keeps cycling out of control. And that's what we, I think that's as a field, that's what we've got to be able to stop. If I'm going to keep talking here, sorry. Um, <laughs> we, you know, I've worked in autism intervention for probably close to 20 years now. And it's been amazing. And these are the kids that really caught my heart early on. And these were the kids that I really wanted to, to be supporting because no one else was supporting them very well that I was seeing. Um, but now at this point in my life, I know that there's a lot of good behavior analysts out there and they're helping a lot of kids with autism. Yet I'm seeing my cousins and my family members and my friends on Facebook and everyone else, you know, posting things about, you know, when I was a kid, my parents hit me and I turned out okay. So we should be hitting our kids still. And, you know, all that kind of crazy stuff. Like, um, and I'm thinking to myself, no, we need to get what we do, what works for children with sometimes severe disabilities out to the public, out to the, out to the lady next door who's having trouble, you know, getting her kid into sit in the grocery cart or having to throw her kid into the, into the grocery cart because the kid won't stay under control walking through the store with them. Or, you know, parents who are dragging, you know, dragging kids kicking and screaming through the airport because that child has never learned that they need to cooperate. And now the child parent needs them to cooperate and they have no tools to work with. Right. Um, these are the people who need what we do. And so I'm really interested in, in moving into making the seven steps available um, to those families out there um, who may not have funding through a diagnosis. But you still can start with my husband. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, we're all like it. It's like, it's family. And you know what? Family members and friends, they never listen to us. No. We, well, no. That's what, like, my follow-up was going to be because, well, two things with Taylor, and then we'll move into the actual seven steps or whatever question you had, Joe. Um, I yeah. told you we just go on these weird tangents. But the two things with Taylor that I was thinking about while you were talking, one, um, one of the things, like, when you're talking about 
your example of the the spanking not working, even at probably like two and a half or three, that I have not found a single consequence for Taylor that like does anything. You could try to do timeout. You could take away toys, like anything on the consequent end. He's just like, fine, I don't want it. <laughs> He's like, I, I don't, or I'll just like throw a fit and it's, it's automatically reinforcing to just have that like physical experience of throwing things. And he thinks it's hilarious and um, it just increases. But so that's all of our work is usually on the antecedent side on the front end where when he's acting like that, figuring out now we're finally at the point where when he starts to make his decisions to go down the road of like bad choices, I can pull back and say, okay, if you're going to keep acting like that, I'm done or I just walk away. But in the past, when I would do that, it didn't, didn't have an effect on him. You know, like he didn't, it didn't matter. He would just have fun and like, I weighed him out. It didn't matter how long we went, everything he would choose to do in the, like I was not reinforcing enough for him for it to do anything. Which is like probably sounds well, like it was very it sounds to me like he that's was not stupid. what would happen with a client, right? Well, it sounds to me like he's um, you know, it sounds to me like you were never really fully, truly um finding a way to fulfill the the goal steps but he was still able to earn enough reinforcement value in refusal. Well now, what I found here's, but, a, here's a topic wait, that wait, wait, what I ahead. found was it was a lot of skill deficits. The, the reasons that he was unsuccessful were there were skills he needed to learn more from like his based on where he was developmentally in his age. So I would reflect on what ha whatever had just happened. Maybe it was a transition issue. Like I was trying to get him to stop watching the iPad and go to the bathroom or, you know, whatever, whatever the thing was that had happened. I read, Oh, okay. He, so especially right now, even still, he has a difficult time if he's in the middle of playing and I say, okay, it's time to go do this other thing. Even if it's something he likes to do, it's just that skill of like shutting down what I'm currently doing and like moving to something else is, a, is difficult for him. So I have to, again, on the antecedent side, do a ton of work of like, okay, let's practice this. Let's do some training on this. How do we stay calm when it's time to transition? What do we do? What does that look like? Then if he chooses to get upset, I can, you know, walk away, shut it down, block reinforcement, right. and he learns from it. But if I weren't focusing on practicing that in a neutral time and like really working on developing whatever skill I identified. So it's not always about, you know, just the environment not being reinforcing enough. If there's a true skill deficit that you're, you're dealing with, you have to work on that too, is what yeah. I've found with him, at least, you know, especially being able to yeah. watch his development. And I, and I absolutely don't disagree with that in any way, shape or form. I think, I think it's like, I mean, people always talk in our field about, um, you know, is there some kind of an underlying medical condition? Well, is there some kind of a, a underlying skill deficit? I mean, yeah. if this child cannot demonstrate the skill that you're asking them to demonstrate, well, then of course you're going to get non-compliance, right? It's like um, one of the things that that I do in my in my instructional control approach is we try to stick to goals that we absolutely know a child can do or stick to goals that we can prompt. And as long as they're willing to allow a prompt, then we can say that, okay, if I can prompt this and they're able to be prompted through it, then we can move forward in a positive way. But if they're refusing a prompt or they're fighting a prompt, then chances are that they're actively trying to avoid or, or escape the, the situation. But I can see you arguing, well, they don't have the, the skill to accept a prompt. 
And at some point, it's like, well, what is skill versus what is behavior? And is there even a difference between skill and behavior? And really, there isn't. Because um, uh, skills are nothing but behaviors. Um, but it, gets, it, it always brings us back to that question. Is this, is, this a, is this something the child cannot do? Or is this something the child will not do? Yep. And the problem, the reason we have behavior analysis to begin with is because trying to just assume one or the other puts us in a lot of trouble right? Um, making some mm -hmm. kind of a mentalistic judgment that this child is refusing to do this because he doesn't want to versus he can't um, puts us in a lot of trouble. And you're always on the better end. It's always better if you're assuming or if you're working towards skill development versus punishment of something a child can't do. I right. totally get that. And that's my next point. <laughs> so I have this <laughs> lovely contrast with my husband where he just wants to like ignore it completely and like I, I'm out like you know the step know your priorities right and like know what you're working on um so I'm trying to always be like these are the skill deficits Taylor has right now that we're practicing and we need to work through and this is what we're going to do for that but I don't get much buy-in um but anyway so I can see like that's part of the issue too I'll see drastic differences in Taylor's behavior based on who's interacting with him because when it's a skill deficit I've been practicing I've been building the rapport around it and Blake basically just exists. Here's the question though. Is, is Taylor having less success because he doesn't have the skill and he needs you to teach him that skill? Or is he having less success because you're following through with positive and negative consequences as you need to and Blake isn't? And even though you're spending time um, trying to follow through with consequences, he's getting lots of experience where those consequences are not being followed through on. Is it really truly going back to the skill deficit? Is it going back to an inconsistency in the application? And again, those are just things we're going to have to um, we're going to have to try to to fix on both ends, and then ultimately get to the better better product or, or the better result, and not really worried which one it was, right? Yeah. We want to be more consistent behaviorally, but we also want to be teaching the skills deficits. Yeah, thankfully, Blake is very and consistent on following through. Doing both better. Sorry, Robert, it cut okay, out. So You're saying do both better? Yeah, I'm saying, I'm saying if we do both better and we get to a positive result, then we got what we wanted. It doesn't matter which was the cause, right? Yeah. Um, but you're saying he does follow through with consequences. He's, he's he more, doesn't. yeah, he's more strict and like more like follow, like I always follow through, but I've had to purposely set up practice with like tolerating no, because I don't really care. I'll say yes to almost everything as long as it's not dangerous. So I had to like <laughs> train that too, because he was starting to give people a hard time when they would say no to him because he was so used to me saying yes. But when I say no, I always follow through. When Blake says no, he always follows through. It's more, again, that front end of like building a relationship. And I think that's where with like most parents, because we have so much going on in our lives all the time and like we're focused on so many different things, people don't realize the importance. You were probably one of the first people that I met in the field that provided really great examples, you and Steve Ward, of how to build, like truly build a relationship with your clients. And I think that's part of the reason we see um, such great success with the seven steps too because that's such a big focus of like how do you actually develop like kids when you when you go to any house I've seen it the kids come running to you you meet a kid one time and they're like obsessed with you <laughs> so like you're really great at that but it's really hard to teach people how to do that 
Um, yeah, and of uh, course, and if it's your own husband, it's even harder. Right. <laughs> Which is how we got on this because family members are the worst because yeah. no matter how many, how many doctorates you've gotten or how many books mm -hmm. I've written or how many presentations I've done around the world or how many wonderful accolades we get online, um, I'm still, you know, Bobby. I'm still <laughs> my brother-in-law, Bobby, who was the, you know, 18 year old kid that I saw in college. Um, that's, that's the way it is. But to get to your, to, to go back to the other thing that you mentioned though, that's what's awesome about the seven steps is, is if you look at it, it's not just a cooperation development, but it's, it's a, it's a relationship building approach because step two, the second step to instructional control is all about um, pairing yourself with reinforcement and making sure the child sees you as a generalized reinforcer. Um, and it actually insists that we, that 75% of every moment we're with our kids is saved and put aside for relationship building, for pairing, for reinforcing, for playing, for having fun with them. So 75% of everything that I do with my kid is supposed to be saved for doing something they want the way that they want, having fun with them, making it better because I'm a part of it. And if I'm doing that, it then allows me to gain what I need from them in the 25% time. And I think that most relationships are like that. I don't think you pick a husband because 75% of the time he makes you do things you don't want to do and 25% of the time he's fun. <laughs> Some people, that's not I, why I doubt you, it. Yeah, I doubt that's not it. why we pick them. Maybe it ends up that way. <laughs> but, but that's not why we choose the people. I mean, we, have, we could choose anybody in the world to spend our lives with. And who do we spend the most time with? The people who enjoy the things we enjoy, who make our lives better and more fun. Those are the people we want to be with, people who have similar ideas and similar thoughts and who can see the same news on the and have similar ideas about it. And if we disagree, we can disagree in a way that we both feel good about each other, right? And so those are the people we gravitate to. Well, if you're going to be a parent to a child who has motivational issues or behavioral challenges, you've got to be someone that that child is gravitating to. And that's not mm -hmm. going to happen if you're a 75% teacher and a 25% uh, um, fun. It's just mm -hmm. not going to happen. They're going to pick someone else to be around. And so we have to be fun. And I don't know about Blake, but again, you, you brought out the personal choice. that I don't know how good he is at step two. I don't know if he finds the time in his day to always be fun enough so that it countermands when he's, when he's, using, um, when he's using step seven. Step seven works only if steps one through six are running. Yeah, running he's a perfect really example well. of that. He does step seven great. <laughs> right. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't yeah, matter because I, I sit in families' homes pretty much five days a week and I sit across or, or online like this and I sit across from a mom and a dad. And sometimes it's the mom, sometimes it's the dad, but it, 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 it's interchangeable. But there's always one parent who is really strict, but doesn't put any time or energy into relationship building and thinks that they're doing it right because that child will listen to them and won't talk back to them. Then you've got the other parent who isn't very strict, who doesn't know how to follow through with consequences. But lots of times playing and engaging and having fun. And they think they're doing it right because the child likes them and doesn't like the other parent. So what I do, what I do is when I come in and I say, okay, both of you guys are wrong. <laughs> and here's why. <laughs> Where you need to be is here. You need to be 
closer to the middle. You need to be closer to the middle. You can't get success by just being a strict disciplinarian. You're not going to get success just by being your child's best friend who's very permissive. You've got to find your way to the middle. You've got to have both aspects of that. You've got to know how and when to be permissive and how to give um, positive reinforcement and how to be fun and how to build your relationship in that 75% of the time you're with that child. But you also have to know how to say what you mean, get um, follow through with your instructions and have consequences available to you, both positive and negative, depending on your child's behavior choices. And so it, the answer isn't be more strict and the answer isn't be more permissive. It's mm -hmm. learn how to do both. And ultimately the seven steps teaches you to do all of it. If you're, if you're creative and understand and really following all seven steps. Now, some people get really good at step seven. Yeah. And they're like, oh, yeah, this is it. I get it. I'm just going to do that. <laughs> and they can get better cooperation, but it ultimately doesn't help the relationship. And to me, the most important thing about the seven steps is that it's not just designed to gain cooperation, but it's designed to gain cooperation while building relationships. And I don't want my kids to just cooperate with me. I don't want, like, you know, grandparents would always talk about, well, yeah, my dad, I, I did everything he said, but I and I respected him. Well, did you respect him? Did you fear him? Did you feel like you needed to spend your whole life trying to gain his, um, his um, affection? You know, or, you know, is that really what you want for your kids? Or look on the permissive side. You know, oh, my, my kid loves being with me, but man, I hate them. <laughs> I don't like who they are. <laughs> I don't like who they become. They want to be with me all the time, but I just want them away because I think that kid's a little shit and I don't want to be anywhere near him. Is that what you want? No, we don't want these for it. We want, we want a child who loves and respects us and likes us and wants to engage with us to the point where they're willing to change their behavior to maintain a good relationship. And sometimes we make mistakes and we fix the relationship. And sometimes they make mistakes and they fix the relationship. Um, and then they have those skills to take to their other relationships, to their boyfriends and their girlfriends, and ultimately hopefully be able to be married. Um, and, and that doesn't happen when we teach by being more strict or we teach by being more permissive. If you look at everything you see online, that's what people talk about. Well, you need to have more consequences and you need to you know, follow through with this and that. Well, yeah, maybe that's part of it. Or you see someone saying, oh, you got to do engagement parenting. You've got to be able to really get down to their level and meet them. Well, that's like play therapy. Yeah, it's great. It builds a relationship, but you still don't get any better compliance. You don't get any better cooperation with that. I mean, to a degree you do in the short term, but once your instructions start getting a little bit more complicated or you start asking for a little bit more, you lose them and you can't friendly your way into getting them to, you know, do math homework. Um, and that's why partly, I'm oh, sorry. And that's why partly I really truly believe that school districts should have a parent training class or really um, focus on parent training with our, um, with our population too, just because the parents need as much training as the students do on how to work with our, with their child. Absolutely. We know that all of the, um, all of the research suggests that parent involvement in ABA programs is important for pot for outcomes. Right. The more, I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's considered one of the evidence-based treatments, parent, parent intervention, parent involvement in intervention. So if we know that training parents how to implement good intervention is going to make the best outcomes, then why is that not true for parents of typical children? Why is that not true for, for every parent? And there is no 
they, they, there was always that joke you would hear, like, you know, you need a driver's license to drive a car, but you don't need a license to have a kid. Any, you know, anybody <laughs> off the street can have a kid. Well, why don't we have some, some kind of focused parent training and intervention? It doesn't have to be a three-year school course. No. I, could sit down, I can sit down with any parent of any child, and within a day or two of back and forth, of going through their schedule, going through their day, figuring out what their goals are, um, going through and identifying what their child's biggest reinforcers are, teaching them the basics of the seven steps, maybe coming up with a token plan to lay over the seven steps, something mm -hmm. that would help them. to give and take from moment to moment and change the behavior of those kids within you know within 30 days i have families that come back to me after 30 days and say things are 90 percent better than they were i didn't think anything would work and now it's 90 percent better it's like it's like night and day um and if we can do that in just a day or two of back and forth interaction with a family every family should get that and maybe they should have refreshers every couple of years because motivators change, mm -hmm. your goals for them change, um, your daily structure for what you need them to do changes. Like in the beginning, you just need them to sit there while you're putting clothes on them, but eventually you need them to put their own clothes on. And then you need them to be able to pick out their own clothes and put them on. And then you need them to be able to know to put clothes on without you saying it. And so as, they're, as they grow and develop, some of our goals for them will change. And sometimes we need to be reminded, okay, how do we change and adjust what we're doing? But if every family were to understand the seven steps and have a way to be able to learn to start implementing it, I think we would stop seeing the, the um, kids at spring break, you know, running around doing things that are idiotic for them in the middle of a coronavirus update. Because these kids would know um, they would be more likely to be listening to their parents' advice. They'd be more likely to be looking after themselves and their friends because they wouldn't be self-centered about getting the things that they want in life, they would have learned to fix relationships and to take care of other people. Um, I don't know, I thought, we, I thought I'd bring a topical there. <laughs> I know, Megan, you've been talking a bit about the spring breakers. Yes, on, um, on this is also the longest tease ever. I think we've done, like, talked for almost an hour about the seven steps, the seven steps, the seven steps, but we haven't actually said what they were. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Go forth on your quest and do better.